Welcome to Restaurant Inc., the business of food podcast. Each episode, our hosts discuss the important and exciting aspects of the food service industry and what you need to know to be successful in this business. From ways to build customer traffic, increase profits, re-engineer your menu, and so much more. What are the hot new items and trends in food service? We'll discuss these and more each episode. If you are in the food service business and you want to see more growth, more customers, and more profits, our expert hosts and their guests will take you there. And now here's your host, Adasha Townsend, Managing Editor of Restaurant Inc. Magazine. Adrian Miller, also known as the Soul Food Scholar, has led a fascinating life. He served as an advisor to President Clinton, worked as an attorney, and then he decided to pick up a pen and has never looked back. His biggest achievement to date is a James Beard Foundation Award for the President's Kitchen Cabinet. He joins us today for a virtual podcast. I want to talk to you about how you decided to get into writing from being an attorney to becoming a writer. Yeah, so the short answer is unemployment. Uh, So I was working in the Clinton White House on something called the Initiative for One America, which was all about ethnic, racial, and religious reconciliation. And when the Clinton administration ended, um, at that time in my life, I wanted to be the senator from Colorado. So I was trying to get back to Denver, Colorado, my hometown. Okay. Uh, but the job market was really slow. I was watching a lot of daytime television. I'm not even going to tell you what shows. <laughs> and uh, I said, you know, I should read something. So I went to a local bookstore. I'm browsing the food section. And I saw this book on the history of Southern food written by a guy named John Edgerton. And in that book, he wrote that the tribute to African-American achievement and cookery had yet to be written. So I thought that was really interesting. And I emailed him because the book was about 10 years years old. And I was convinced somebody has written that book. And he said, Mm -hmm. you know, people have addressed parts of the story, but nobody's taken it on full time, uh, full on. And so uh, with no qualifications at all, except for eating a lot of soul food and cooking it some, that launched me on a journey to write the book on uh, soul food. And 12 years later, I finished that book. That's uh, fantastic. Yeah. And what did you learn about soul food? Uh, I know you say you've been a soul food aficionado forever, pretty much. Yeah. What did you find out in writing this book about soul food? I think one of the biggest surprises is that um, I brought into the narrative that soul food was basically poverty food. It was slavery food. It was the white people's leftovers, their garbage, the food they didn't want. And it's a much more complex story. Uh, Mm -hmm. Soul food melds the culinary techniques and traditions of West Africa, Western Europe, and the Americas, and it's all Hmm. coming together. So it's one of the earliest uh, fusion cuisines that we have on this side of the world. And um, one of the biggest takeaways is that if you actually look at what enslaved Africans were eating, it's very close to what we call vegan today, because meat was a luxury. It may have been used to season some vegetables, but only when the work schedule slowed down did, did enslaved people have meat, uh, barbecue, fried chicken, the, the rolls and cakes and all the things that we think of. So um, that was celebration food. And then when African-Americans leave the South and go to other parts of the country, that food they took with them. And as they settled and took root in places, uh, once they started to thrive, they started to have the celebration food more often. And that celebration food of the migrants that left the South is what we come to call soul food. Okay, that's really fascinating. Um, wh- would you say that that food was also sustainable like with, during the slavery time? You can kind of call that the beginnings of sustainability, right? 
Oh yeah, absolutely. Because when you think about uh, a lot of enslaved people had their own gardens, they were raising their own animals. Okay. Uh, and so they were close to the land in many, in many cases. And I, that was something I didn't know either. Um, Cause I thought it was really just about controlled rations Mm -hmm. that, that enslaved people were getting from the enslavers. But in, in many cases, they were either autonomous or semi-autonomous in terms of their food. Um, so given the meager rations that they got, and that was usually an amount of food once a week that was a couple of pounds of meat, which could be beef, pork, fish, a couple pounds of uh, about five pounds or so of some starch, usually cornmeal, sweet potatoes or rice. And then okay. the enslaved had to supplement that diet by fishing, foraging, hunting, and growing their own food. Wow. How, I mean, I feel like we don't really do that anymore. What happened? Well, I think um, with the mass movement of people to urban settings, uh, in many cases, it was just difficult to grow that food um, on, on their own. So people started to rely most, mostly on grocery stores, mm -hmm. restaurants, churches, street vendors. All of those people were very important to the initial wave of migrants during the Great Migration who uh, go to these other places. Then when, um, when, when a lot of these uh, migrants settled in cities, they often lived in places that were not, um, that had very meager kitchens. In fact, you yeah. often had to pay an extra amount on your rent to have something called kitchen privileges. Wow. You know, access to a common kitchen shared with other people. So it was really only later when people got to their own homes that had their own kitchen that, and then they had a yard where they could garden that we see kind of a comeback with mm -hmm. that. And then even in rural communities, just with mechanization and other things, there's just a disconnect between that and you know, the, the ways of our grandparents and uh, enslaved people um, and growing our own food. Wow, wow. So um, this first book about soul food inspired you to write the next one about the president's kitchen cabinet? Yeah, yeah. And what happened is while I was researching that book for soul food, and what I did to research that book is I read 3,000 oral histories of formerly enslaved people looked for all references for food, read about 500 cookbooks, thousands of newspaper articles, because we now have companies that digitize magazines and newspapers going back to the 1600s or even earlier. Huh. Um, and through all of that, um, I came across stories of African-Americans who were in the presidential kitchen. Now, by the time I finished my soul food book, I only had a few stories, definitely not enough to anchor a book. And okay. I said, if I can just keep researching and find enough stories, I want that to be my next book. And through about four more years of research, I identified 150 African-Americans who have been in the presidential kitchen. Uh, That's fascinating. Washington. Yeah. And I'm just scratching the surface because records weren't very well kept. You're listening to the Restaurant Inc. The Business of Food podcast. We'll be back in just a moment. But first, are you running a restaurant, working in the food service industry, or just a lover of food? You need to check out rfsdelivers.com and see all the tools and insights available to you to help run a profitable food service operation. Want some new recipes to wow your customers? We have those too. Come see us at rfsdelivers.com and get the tools you need and the inspiration you crave. Running a restaurant comes with many challenges, and Reinhardt Food Service has the tools to help meet the needs of your food service operation. Check out rfsdelivers.com and find out how our team can help find more profits, build customer traffic, and create buzz around town for your growing restaurant. Get it right from us. And now back to our conversation. What were some of the most fascinating stories you found during your research? One of the most fascinating people is a person named Hercules, who was the enslaved cook for George Washington. Uh, the very first president. Yeah, the very first president, enslaved cook. Had a, had a black man as his chef. The oh, very yeah. first well, president. Actually, he had a biracial man named Samuel Francis who was in char charge of his residence. 
So Samuel Francis was in charge of doing the grocery stop shopping, planning the menus, picking out the wines. And then Hercules executed the meal and he had his son as a sous chef, his wow. son in Richmond. And so, uh, yeah, so he, was, he learned to cook at Mount Vernon. And then when Washington becomes president, our, our nation's capital was Philadelphia while DC was being constructed. And so he brought Hercules and other enslaved people to uh, basically staff the presidential household. But there was one wrinkle, a legal wrinkle. Uh, Pennsylvania had something called the Gradual Abolition Act of 1780, which said, if you were an enslaved person on Pennsylvania soil for six months or longer, you were automatically free. Hmm. So to get around this, what Washington did is just around the time the six month deadline would toll, mm -hmm. he would pack up all the enslaved people, send them to Mount Vernon, have them there for a couple of weeks and then bring them back to start the clock over. Oh so, my goodness. Yeah. So Hercules is this renowned chef. He, people okay. write about him in their diaries, uh, but he ends up escaping on Washington's birthday. And uh, he successfully escapes, gets away from Washington. And um, for a long time, his, you know, what happened afterwards was a big mystery. But we've recently found out that he made his way to New York City, stayed there, took on the, uh, the assumed name or assumed the name of the enslaver who had him before Washington, a guy named Posey. And so he lived as Hercules Posey in New York City and was a chef. And he died uh, early May of 1812. Wow, that, that is fascinating. Yeah, and we think we found his grave. And so we're trying to figure out how to identify his grave site. That's, that's some, that is some great research there. Yeah. Now, I know you said that you also uncovered that there were a lot of women who cooked for presidents too, a lot of black women. Yes. Can you tell me more about that? Sure. So uh, the earliest we know is um, a pop, maybe apocryphal story, but the earliest uh, kind of story about that is John Adams had a woman named Aunt Dinah and, they, and supposedly she invented strawberry ice cream by accident. Um, but the first real documented case we have is Thomas Jefferson. And so um, he had two enslaved women, Edith Fawcett and Frances Hearn, who were essentially the, the sous chefs for a French chef all throughout Jefferson's two terms. And then they go back with him to um, Monticello in Virginia and they cook for him the rest of his life. And they're essentially the, and they, so they were trained in French cooking and kind of half Virginia, half French style. Mm -hmm. uh, and so those, those, but the really sad thing, in addition to being enslaved, is those women were forced to stay at the White House even during the summer when Jefferson went back to Monticello. And if you know anything about DC, it's from uh, basically reclaimed swampland. Mm. So there were reports of White House workers in the 1800s getting tropical diseases. But these women were forced to stay there and, and cook for the skeleton crew at the White House. And we have stories of their husbands escaping Monticello just to be with their wives, but getting intercepted before they get to DC and turned around. Wow. Yeah. That's really fascinating. So now you're working on, is this your third book, the barbecue book? Yeah, so my third book is going to be on the history of African-American barbecue. And the reason why I'm writing that book is because if you look at food media today, you would hardly know that Black people barbecue. And uh, it's really a tribute uh, and a celebration to these African-American cooks who are, were basically the standard bearers for great barbecue um, for 150 years until recently. And they were barbecue's best ambassadors. So the working title for that book is Black Smoke. African-American Adventures in Barbecue, and that is scheduled to come out spring of 2021, hopefully in time for uh, National Barbecue Month. That is National Barbecue Month. Yeah, That's 
Do, do you have recipes in there as well? Do you, are you barbecuing a lot or are you just traveling, uh, eating as much different regional barbecue as possible? Yes, high, high, huge emphasis on eating. Uh, <laughs> so I'm doing a lot of eating and a lot of researching. So yes, yeah, certainly there will, will be recipes. Um, I'm, tr I'm striving to have a couple of recipes for each chapter. And the way that I write the book, it's not a travelogue. It's really more an exploration of the people that drive the barbecue narrative. So um, I talk about enslaved uh, African-American barbecuers, their struggles and their triumphs. I talk about the entrepreneurs, people on the comp competition circuit, church barbecue. A lot of black preachers have been called to preach the word of God and smoke meat. So I wanted to explore that. Hmm. Uh, yeah. And in, throughout the narrative, I feature women because um, despite the hyper masculinity that's given to barbecue, black women have mm -hmm. been in the barbecue game from the earliest days. And so their stories are woven throughout the narrative as well. And then I end by talking, what's the future of barbecue? Um, you know, especially in these times, I, I might have to, given that I finished that chapter before the pandemic broke out, so I might have to go back to that last chapter and really talk about what is the future of barbecue restaurants uh, given these times. Speaking of the pandemic, uh, we were discussing this before. Um, you were talking about how black restaurants are affected by the pandemic and I want you to talk about that more and how they can overcome the pan pandemic. Yeah, so um, I had mixed thoughts about when the pandemic, when the news of the restaurant shutdowns really came out, I had mixed thoughts because I, uh, my experience with African-American restaurants is a lot of them were primed for a takeout business as a key part of their business plan because uh, given undercapitalization and other uh, factors, a lot of black restaurateurs don't have a, a huge dine-in seating you know, dine in, sit down kind of presence. Um, so I thought, hey, maybe they might be able to weather the storm. Uh, but that takeout business is often predicated on gatherings, family mm -hmm. reunions, or, you know, Sunday dinner, or even the after church business. And so um, most of the restaurants that I uh, know about, I've been talking to some of the owners, the ones that have been able to work out something with their landlord have a fighting chance. Um, they seem to be nimble and pivoting. It's the ones that um, the landlord is drawing a hard line and not being forgiving. Um, those are the ones that are really hurting. So one thing we can do as consumers, because I think restaurants had no choice but to just become more creative with having a takeout business, trying to figure out uh, how to create experiences um, from mm -hmm. that takeout business and market that. But we as consumers, we need to support them if we have the resources. Um, the other thing I would suggest is um, getting takeout directly from the restaurant and tipping extra when you get your food, just so they could have, you know, because they need all of the resources they can get. And then I would suggest if you have a special skill and you have a restaurant that you just love, reach out to the restaurant owners and just see if there's something you can do to help them out. Maybe you can help them out with marketing, um, social media, thinking more about how to, what's gonna be on the other side when restaurants uh, open up. I think there's ways that we can help in addition to buying their food and supporting them. That's, that's fantastic, Adrian, it really is. Um, I want to know, you, I think you're a part of the Southern Alliance, what is it called again? Yeah, the Southern Foodways Alliance. Can you explain exactly what that is and how important it is to um, the hospitality industry and the restaurant industry in general? Oh yeah, it's a great organization. So it, it's, um, it's, little, it's more than 20 years old now. Uh, it was yeah. started in the late 90s uh, by such greats as Edna Lewis, um, Jessica B. Harris, John T. Edge, uh, John Edgerton, a lot, Tony Tipton Martin, a lot of people came together and they wanted to create an organization that would do two things. 
One is to celebrate the diverse food cultures of the American South, to study them, document them, promote them. But the other thing was this idea of coming together at the table. Like how can food bring us together, especially given the South's really troubled past. Uh, so uh, the, the organization has grown. They've done a lot of oral histories to document restaurateurs, chefs, and other people in the food industry, um, tell those stories that haven't been told. Uh, and then, uh, the thing I love is every year there's some kind of theme. And so uh, each fall there's a symposium at the University of Mississippi in Oxford that people come together for that symposium. And that's all kinds of people in the food industry to hear talks and presentations and really have discussions about the current state uh, whatever that theme is, and then what going forward. So the year that I joined, the theme was barbecue. And, uh, <laughs> in addition to that symposium in the fall, they usually have some kind of uh, field trip to a part of the South that reinforces the theme. Okay. So when I when the theme was barbecue in 2002, 2002 uh, the field trip was to Central Texas. So mm. I went to Austin and Environs and ate barbecue for three days straight. It was one of three of the happiest days of my life. <laughs> Um, but they're doing a lot to just really kind of uh, promote Southern food uh, and try to deal with the complex issues involved with Southern food, especially given the region's really uh, troubled history and trying to bring us together. And so in these times, I think it's a great place for people to find out about these restaurants, find out about these chefs, and mm -hmm. it could be a space for us to creatively think about how we can we support people in this industry and help them weather the storm. Excellent. Excellent. Um, Adrian Miller, I want to thank you again for talking to us at Restaurant Inc. Um, it's, it's been a pleasure and an honor. Yeah, I wish you all the luck in the world with your next book. I can't wait to read it. I'm, my stomach is rumbling just thinking about that book. Uh, mission accomplished. Yeah, <laughs> I'm, really, I'm really happy with the way it's turning out. Some, some great stories, things you've never heard before. Can't wait. I really can't wait. Okay, right, well, thank, thank you, you so, so much. much, Adrian. Thank you. The Restaurant Inc. podcast is hosted by yours truly, Adasha Townsend. Produced, engineered, and edited by David Salvi and Jeff Zimmerman. Please like and subscribe. We are on SoundCloud and iTunes. Thank you, foodie listeners. That's it for this edition of Restaurant Inc., the Business of Food podcast, a production of Reinhardt Food Service. If you're looking for more resources on how to get and stay profitable, or you're looking for the latest trends in food service, go to rfsdelivers.com or check out our Restaurant Inc. magazine. Are you looking for new recipes and inspiration? Check out the Dish magazine, also on rfsdelivers.com. Tune in next time for another edition of Restaurant Inc. The Business of Food podcast. Like, subscribe today.